0: Trees in every country. Trees, you know we can work together and learn what we need to meet the challenge. Traditional skills and modern techniques. Whatever language you speak, you have a world to offer every day. Climb with the ISA.
1: Welcome to the ISA Science of Arbor Culture Podcast Series. This series was developed by the International Society of Arboriculture and is brought to you by Bartlett Tree Experts, caring for America's trees since 1907. This podcast series offers full-length educational talks by the world's top researchers, educators, and practitioners, helping to keep you up to date with developments in the arboriculture industry. Today's talk is by Joe Murray, former college biology professor, certified arborist, and ISA track instructor, on the life cycle and benefits of lichens in today's forests. It was originally presented at the 2014 ISA International Conference in Milwaukee, Wisconsin.
0: Well, to make sure you're in the right room, um, if you wanna stay here, I should tell you what I'm gonna talk about, why I feel it's important, and one thing you can take away from this talk. So first off, what I'm gonna talk about is the who, what, where, when, why of lichen. So it's basically gonna be a lichen biology lecture. I'm also gonna talk about challenges that lichen face when growing in urban areas and with some common arboricultural practices too. Why I feel it's important is we're plant healthcare practitioners. And I hope our creed is, first do no harm. So when it comes to lichen, don't shoot first and ask questions later. They are not causing problems with your trees. They're probably beneficial to the trees and they're beneficial to the ecosystem, including the urban ecosystem as well. And um, the last thing, something to take away, uh, we've gone through a lot of changes in arboriculture. We're a young industry, a young scientific discipline. We've stopped filling cavities with cement. We've stopped topping trees, stopped lion tailing, using uh, tree paint. And uh, if I use the word mycorrhizae, good or bad? It's good. But in 1985, when I was a graduate student, I went to the same college, Uh, I'm not gonna say which one because of the story I'm about to tell, Uh, as Jesse, but the esteemed professor was telling me not to listen to the forest ecologist that mycorrhizae was a fungus, and it was infecting roots, and it should be killed. And on the test, I had to regurgitate what fungicides to use to do that. So we're a nimble industry. You know, we, we grow, we adapt, and we have to change. And I'm wondering if lichen might not be that next chapter that we look at. So are you in the right room? Are you gonna stick with me? <laughs> I wanted to show you, uh, to put things in context, to show you where I'm coming from, literally. Uh, I'm in this area right here. Um, And I think it's important to know that so that you can see, you know, because we're shaped by our environments where we come from. And also the pictures that you're going to see of the lichen, I've taken just about all of them. And a lot of them come from this area as well. Dialing it in closer to home, this is where I've just moved now. I'm in Bath County in a tiny little community with about two dozen people. And I'm no longer, I don't teach at that community college anymore. not affiliated with the university. I don't have a PhD. Uh, the woods are my classroom. Squirrels are my professors now. And uh, I noticed that my neighbors, when I drive by, I saw Duck Dynasty flags and NASCAR. And I said, Well, I can do some branding too. So I let them know that there's a deadhead who lives here in the woods. In the forest, there are many different organisms. I mean, it goes from bacteria to bears. And some of these organisms have a a very intimate relationship with each other. It's symbiotic, and I wanna define that. Symbiotic means that two organisms are living very closely together. In your mind, you conjure up something positive or negative when I say symbiotic. Yeah, well, okay, there's more to that now. Symbiotic again just means two organisms that are very close together. Now within symbiosis, you can have mutualism and that's the warm fuzzy feeling you got when I first said symbiosis. That's where the two organisms that are you know, closely aligned with each other, are, it's mutually beneficial. So both parties benefit from the relationship. Parasitism, also falls underneath symbiosis too. Again, two organisms closely uh, linked together. One organism is gonna benefit and the other one's gonna be harmed. And then there's commensalistic, that's where one organism benefits and the other one doesn't benefit or it's harmed. There's commensalistic and there's other ones too. So in the forest, if you're gonna be pulling somebody out, and that's what we do with trees basically, they evolved in forest, and we're taking them and putting them into the urban landscape, we're not bringing their associates with them And if I gave you a list of all those associates that go with trees, I think that'd be pretty arrogant for you to say, do without, do without, do without, because we don't know what all of them do. Who's that individual in the lower right-hand corner there? Yeah, you better get that right in Wisconsin. Uh, John Muir is the uh, father of national parks. Uh, We owe Yosemite, Grand Canyon, and a lot of other amazing parks to him and his effort. He was um, also the patron saint of environmental activism too in North America. Uh, John Muir was born just outside of Edinburgh. I've made my pilgrimage to his birthplace. And then he moved to the US and he grew up in Wisconsin, about 114 miles uh, northwest of here. Is it Montello, is that how you pronounce it? Those are his formative years. He took his first class in botany at University of Wisconsin at Madison. And uh, there he had an epiphany. Took some classes in geology, said forget the degree, and he took off and went to the west. He also partnered with a very influential individual, uh, President Theodore Roosevelt. and uh, Those two together, they were kindred souls, and uh, that's what really changed America with respect to parks and how we preserve native areas. There's also a story with uh, Theodore Roosevelt in Milwaukee. This is where he survived an assassination attempt. He was shot in the chest, bullets lodged in the chest, and he said, you know, I'm gonna give my speech. They said, that's probably not a good idea. He gave a 90 minute speech, then went to the hospital. Nails. (laughs) So what's the public perception of lichen? There's gonna be a number of tree owners that just look at lichen as insignificant. There's some tree owners that'll look at lichen and they'll say, oh, I remember that from general biology in high school, and that it maybe doesn't present a problem, maybe might actually be beneficial too. But then there's gonna be some tree owners that look at the lichen, and they assume that something's wrong. Uh, The problem is, if they call up an arborist, then the arborist is complicit with that. And then they say, yeah, there might be something wrong, and then he can pull out his list of services. Well, it wouldn't hurt to try some of these, and it can. Part of this talk comes from uh, a presentation I gave up in the Northeast, and there's a tree company up there that offers a lichen removal service. And they use scrub brushes and Clorox to remove it, and other tree companies were toying with that idea of offering that service too. So that's why I said, all right, enough's enough. You know, we've got to have a talk about this. Systematics, is uh, this is how scientists approach uh, an organism to really get a handle on them. It involves identification, naming, taxonomy, Um, also evolutionary origins. When it comes to lichen systematics, it's not settled. They haven't really sorted it out yet. Things got crazy among the lichen scientists when they realized that it's not two organisms. And apologies to Brian if he's here. I'm just working on my uh, drawing skills. (laughs) I can really use a lesson with him. But uh, the people who study lichen's when they realize that it's not a single organism, but it's two or more that are sharing a same body, that's when you can no longer classify the organism. And nor are you gonna be able to find its evolutionary origins. And that's created a real hullabaloo. So now when lichens are being identified, they're being identified by the fungal component of uh, the lichen. So, on the left here, this is an example of something you can find growing on trunks of trees. This is a smooth patch. It's a fungus that just eats the outside bark. It's not a problem for trees, at least not on the East Coast where I'm familiar with them. And over on the right is uh, algae. That, is in, um, that was in England, um, really close to the North Sea. So you've seen that advertisement before, chocolate and peanut butter? And then the, the two people get together, usually in a humorous way, and then you end up getting Reese's, exactly. So I brought that along, and it's a, if you're trying to explain this to somebody, it's a good way to do it, and also, you know, it's a little snack you can have as well. So here's one of those Reese's peanut butter cups. And what's this going to be on the outside, the chocolate? What does that represent on lichen? The fungus. And then the peanut butter on the inside, that's gonna be the photobiont. That's either gonna be green algae or else it's gonna be a photosynthetic bacteria called cyanobacteria. So those two together, that's what's gonna make up uh, lichen. But you can find lichen on the tree trunk in addition to finding like just fungi and uh, algae as well. So getting into uh, a section now, so this is a little drawing I did so we can peer inside of a a lichen body. The body is called a thallus. So you might hear me referring to that this morning. Uh, So inside of this body of a fungus, there's gonna be the fungal component and that's called the mycobiont. And then there's gonna be the photosynthetic component and that's called the photobiont. Uh, The mycobiont's gonna be made up usually of the type of of fungi called ascomycetes and that makes up the majority of um, lichen. And there's just a handful of the basidiomycetes like some of the typical mushrooms you saw in the the slides earlier. The photobiont is going to be made up either of green algae and uh, I think there's about two dozen different genera that will do that. There's a few golden algae and brown algae but not many of those. And then there's this other photobiont and that's the photosynthetic bacteria or cyanobacteria. There's about 12 different genera of that. The um, lines you see right here, these are representing hyphal strands and those are the cells that will make up mycelia. So when you can see it, it's mycelia, but that's made up of all these individual hyphal strands. So at the top part of uh, the lichen, what you see when you're looking down on it, these hyphal strands are gonna be weaved together pretty tightly. The cell walls are pretty thick and also they secrete a gelatinous matrix. And this is to try to offer protection for the lichen and also to try to keep some moisture inside of it. Now, moisture can enter and also exit through the top of the lichen body and the moisture can also exit and enter through the bottom of it too. The lichen needs to have about 50 to 70% saturation with water to actively do photosynthesis. When it gets down below 30%, then it just goes into like a state of hibernation. You may also find some pigments, because maybe you've seen brightly colored lichen before. That's going to be located in the upper cortex here. That's where they are. And they're there to regulate the amount, the intensity of sunlight that's getting down to the photobionts. You'll find too that there'll be some pigments at the bottom of the lichen body and they tend to be really dark. And oftentimes it's melanin, the same pigment that gives us color too. The lichen that are in exposed areas, especially exposed to full sun, they tend to be brightly colored. The ones you find in the forest when there's a lot of shade, they're gonna be more of like a light blue or a gray color and it will sort of turn to like an olive color when they're actively doing photosynthesis. This network here, it's uh, really quite amazing. Uh, it, the hyphal strands are gonna be bringing water and minerals to the uh, photobionts And then they're gonna be taking the photosynthates away from the photobionts uh, back out to share with everybody else. The photosynthates, the end products of the the green algae is sugar alcohols. And the end product of photosynthesis for the cyanobacteria is glucose. It's not as springy and spongy as I made it in the drawing right here. It really is a little bit more compact in the middle. So there's a bit of a challenge, how do you get gas exchange, because if they're going to be doing photosynthesis, they have to get carbon dioxide, they have to get rid of oxygen. So the lichen does something very clever. These cells right here secrete a hydrophobic substance on their outside to create little channels so that there can be gas exchange going on between it. I mean, this is really exciting to me. Is it to you? (laughs) Because I usually can't get people to sit still long enough to get this deep into lichens. Um, there is, uh, I'm putting this up against a, a drawing of a leaf right here. The function of the leaf here is going to be all about protection. It's not about letting stuff in and out of the leaf. So there's going to be a layer of wax made by these epidermal cells. And also the same thing going on at the bottom. So there's that opening, that stomate where you can have gas exchange going on. There are some lichen that will have openings at the top, uh, the upper cortex where they can have gas exchange. Otherwise, it'll just go through uh, that hyphal network up at the top in a leaf. This is how water and minerals is going to be delivered to those cells doing photosynthesis. But again, it's going to be the hyphal strands that do it when the photosynthate is made. It's going to be pumped into the phloem and then sent to the rest of the plant. But that same network that's bringing the water and minerals will be taking the sugar away. And they also have that spongy part of a leaf, the spongy parenchyma or the spongy mesophyll. This is called the medulla. They call that the mesophyll in a leaf. But that's going to be so it doesn't get in the way of gas exchange and uh, water transpiring out of it. There's about a th- between fifteen and 30,000 species of lichen. Um, the, <laughs> I mean, there's got a lot to figure out how they're going to name it and are they different types of lichen. There's about 3,600 that are in North America. And uh, they're gonna live on, well, just where they live in general, some of the tallest mountains on earth, up to 23,000 feet, they found lichen up there in the Arctic tundra, they're there, and they're out in the middle of deserts on bare rock too. So they've really occupied a lot of niches. There's basically three different kinds of substrates that they live on, and that's gonna be bare soil, and that's the first one I'm gonna talk about here. Uh, This is a right of way that I manage for a, a client And there was this one area of the right of way where there's never been any vegetation that's going to challenge the line. And when I dug around, the the, uh, soil is uh, very shallow and it's blasted with the southwest sun. So everything there is bonsai, little tiny blueberries trying to grow, little tiny blackberries. But there's a lot of bare soil, but there's no erosion. And when I looked at it more closely, and that's what these images are, is getting in closer there's lichen and this is one of the substrates that lichen grows on and it's called a soil crust. Um, And I'll go into a little bit more detail later about the functions that they perform, but that's one substrate. And I should also say on all these substrates, the lichen is not obtaining nutrients from the substrate. If something happens to go by dissolved in water, they'll help themselves to that, but otherwise they're taking it from the air. Uh, the water and the minerals as well, but they're not extracting anything from the substrate. They're just gonna tend to grab onto it and, and to hold tight. Branches, both live and dead. That's another substrate, and that's what I'm primarily gonna be talking about is uh, living on bark, and that's called corticulus lichen that does that. No matter where a lichen lives, some scientist has given it a name, and the one that's on bark is called corticulus. Aren't these wonderful images too, by the way? <laughs> This is on rock and uh, another substrate, a real common one, but it can be fence posts uh, on the sides of buildings. There's a lot of man-made structures now that they grow on, including even on the back of some insects and sloths. They found some lichen on top of them. Slow moving professors on campus. (laughs) (laughs) This slide can also help us to illustrate the three overall growth forms of lichen. So when an arborist is going to identify a tree, we're looking at leaves or needles. And we have this dichotomous key either in our head or we have one in front of us. And after that, we're looking at how the leaves are arranged, the phylotaxy, how the buds are arranged if we're looking at it in the winter. So if, if you're trying to identify the lichen, the first thing you need to do is to identify which growth form it is in. Now when the fungus that makes up 80% of this body of uh, lichen, when the fungus is not in a lichen relationship, we say it's non-lichenized, and it has a completely different form and lifestyle than when it does hook up with a photobiont and then it's um, uh, in the body of a lichen. Something happens when the photobiont and the fungus get together, it turns on genes and then there's this change to the morphology of the fungus and then it starts to develop that thallus and takes care of the photobiont. And maybe I should explain that too about the, uh, what is, uh, what symbiotic relationship is lichen? Is it mutualism or parasitism? You Mutualism, and it's usually held up as the poster child of mutualism. General biology books will say, well, this is it. This is the ultimate of mutualism. But it's differential benefits that are realized by the partners. Like 90% of the sugar goes to the fungus, 10% of the sugar goes to the photobiont. And when though it hyphae grabs onto the photobionts, it weakens them and then it systematically kills them. The photobionts reproduce fast enough that they can replace the ones that die, but make no mistake, they're gonna die way before their time when they're in a lichen relationship. Some lichenologists are saying, maybe we should call this controlled parasitism. Uh, But the photobionts are enjoying places on this planet, 23,000 feet, (laughs) that they wouldn't get to by themselves. So they're saying, well, let's still put it in the word, you know, or the category mutualism. But that's just one of those cool things about a lichen that the more we learn about it, the more we find out. it Doesn't fit our man-made categories. It's the first time that fungi discovered agriculture, when you think about it. Beat us by many, many millions of years. So here are the three different kinds the growth forms. Uh, This is called crustos over here, where it looks like a little gnome came and spray painted the bottom of a tree. That's called crustos, where it looks like it's spray painted. These can be quite small, about like one millimeter or two millimeter in size. The uh, one that looks like a leaf that's flattened up against the substrate, that's called folios. And then the one that has three dimensions to it, that's going to be called fruticos. On rocks, in soil, in a lot of different substrates, you typically have them occurring in that order. There's a succession with lichen on their substrate. So on rock, you usually find crustose first, if it's bare rock or bare soil, then folios moves in, and then fruticose moves in after that. Um, If there's been a disturbance to that area, like the soil, somebody just walks across and destroys the soil crust, you start over again with the uh, uh, crustos, then folios, then fruticos. But it's different on trees, and I'll get to that. Part of that is because of the bark, and and just the dynamic nature of trees is why they don't follow that classic succession. Um, To illustrate this about the specificity, of lichen, I'm going to look at. Uh, this is a white oak just down the road from where I live. It's two white oaks right there, and I found growing on the trunk of the trees right down here a Lobaria species of lichen. I mean, that just gets me hot under the collar saying that. This is a fascinating uh, lichen. First time I was introduced to it was when I read this book, The Wild Trees. How many of you read it? And the rest of you read it. Uh, We had Steve Sillett with the books about. Uh, He came and talked at the ISA. was the keynote speaker. I think it was like 2008 or something when we were in St. Louis. And then he goes, you'll understand the importance of loberia when you read that. So in the book, he had a challenge to people on the East Coast, climb your trees, look for Loberia. So I was, I did, I am, and I'm not finding it in the crown of the trees. Where I'm finding it is at the very bottom of trees and especially older uh, oak trees, white oak trees and chestnut oak trees. So this is, I went all around and looked at these trees and I couldn't find Loberia anywhere else. And that's why, I, you know, in the meat of my presentation, is wanted to talk about that. Why is it like that? Uh, part of it has to do with the size of the tree. So here are the two white oaks that I'm talking about right here that have lobaria at the base. The, there's other white oaks around them, but they don't have the same width nor the same age. And this is something researchers have found out in the UK. You have to hit a certain diameter before these uh, indicator lichens show up that will let us know you have good air quality and let us know that you might have like an ancient forest. And that ancient forest is defined differently all around the world. Some people will say 125 years, some 200 years. Pretty much depends upon the species of the trees and of the forest and how it's been disturbed. Um, So there is something with respect to width and the age of the tree. And uh, that lichen is not gonna show up until you hit those two parameters. This is another white oak right here. It's the same diameter as the other one, but there's no loberia on that. And as I kept on looking at these trees back and forth between them, there were some real subtle differences to the bark. And I'll show some images of that. Um, The bark has a lot to do as to which lichen is gonna grow and be successful. And then this is my attempt at a conifer tree right here. Completely different bark biology and they've got their own set of lichen uh, that they're gonna be growing. So this is the Lobaria. This is the name of it right here, the one that I'm all excited about. And the reason why is because this is a lichen that has the fungal component, the, 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 you know, the fungus at the top and the bottom, the upper and lower cortex. And in the middle, there's two photobionts. There's a green algae, but there's also a cyanobacteria. And the cyanobacteria, this is one of the most ancient bacteria on earth. It's the oldest fossil we have on earth. is about 3.5 and they found one that's 3.8 billion years old off the coast of Australia. This is a bacteria that has the ability not only to take carbon out of the air and fix it, to take carbon dioxide and turn it into sugar, but it can take nitrogen out of the air and it can fix that and it can turn it into ammonia. So that's why cyanobacteria is such an important uh, organism because it's bringing nitrogen in a usable form into ecosystems. And it's pretty, (laughs) I like it too. Uh, so talking a little bit about bark, there's uh, one of the reasons why certain types of lichen, like the loberry, berry, love to have that present in your landscape, doesn't show up is on young trees the bark is really smooth and some of these lichen that show up later on provide most of the benefits, they need a more rough surface. Um, the bark on a young maple is actually pretty hard, but when the maple gets older it's going to be soft and then it can hold on to more water. And sugar maples in particular, they do leach out a lot of things. They leach out a lot of nutrients, especially on the East Coast. And they also leach out uh, some nitrogenous compounds too. So it's a great place for uh, lichen to live. In fact, this is, I think, the champion is a sugar maple. And uh, it's located somewhere in the East. They found 30 different species of lichen um, on that. The bark is not that acidic uh, on... uh, uh, maple as well. Here's a red maple, and this shows you that dynamic nature of uh, bark. The, you always have lichen moving around. Now, they don't have little legs, they can't march off that way. It's going to be squirrels, birds, storms, breaking off little pieces of them, and then they get blown somewhere else. Uh, sometimes, when the lichen reproduces, the spores go one way, the algae goes another, but given enough time, they're going to find each other and they can form that body again. So you have young bark and you have certain types of lichen growing there, but as that bark changes, then there's gonna be succession, and then you have a different kind of lichen that grows. So it's very dynamic. I was frustrated to see when I'm doing research on lichen that all the observations are made at eye level. there's very few people that are climbing trees and studying the lichen. And uh, when they do, they're finding there's different lichen um, and they're trying to figure out why they occur at different heights. It's going to have to do with light and probably have a lot to do with bark as well. The tulip poplar is an example of a bark that doesn't really exfoliate. So it's more stable. It also has a, um, it's not terribly acidic. And um, again, there's gonna be a transition and it's primarily because of the rough texture that occurs as tulip poplars start to grow. And then going on the other end of the spectrum here, oaks in general have acidic bark. It's hard and it's gonna be rough. And this accounts for a lot of the difference in the lichen that's gonna be growing on it. Because even though that fungus, even though the lichen doesn't take anything from the substrate, they're very specific as to where they're gonna grow. White oak's my favorite, so um, I just took some pictures of that one. Uh, The bark changes, it gets softer as it gets older, and also it's very absorbent. So there's a lot of lichen that grows on white oak that have high moisture requirements. And then conifer bark doesn't have much in the way of nutrients. It doesn't leach out as much nutrients as oaks and maples and poplars. I'm gonna use the term here, gymnosperms and angiosperms. Gymnosperms are referring to conifers. This is a very ancient line of trees, the gymnosperms. No flowers for these guys. So the conifer trees like the pines, fir, spruce, those are gymnosperms. And then angiosperms, when I use that term, I'm talking about everybody else, the maples, oaks, and things like that. So the gymnosperms, their bark is uh, low in nutrients and it is acidic. And part of the reason why it's low in nutrients is that the, the bark, the properties of the bark have a lot to do with the properties of the phloem. So when the vascular cambium is churning out those annual rings of the xylem on the inside, it's making phloem on the outside. And it's very simple in the genosperms and conifers. It's basically making one cell type. It's a sieve tube element cell. That's gonna make up the phloem. And it's gonna be oriented vertically. But in angiosperms, like on an oak for example, there's gonna be two cell types. You got the sieve tube elements and you have companion cells. And not only is it going vertically, there's also gonna be a horizontal arrangement of cells in the phloem too. Other than the uh, sieve tube element cells and the conifers, there might be some parenchyma cells and maybe a fiber or two. But there could be like four different cell types going on in addition to the two I just talked about in angiosperms. So the angiosperms, that oak, Bark is more complex. There's more opportunities there than you would have in uh, the conifer. Here are some other things that could influence the bark too. These are both internal and external factors. And you can also have organisms that are gonna be influencing that as well. There are so many things that can affect the the bark of a tree that it falls underneath this category of polymorphism, which means a lot to geneticists. That's where you can have two individuals that are basically identical twins or they have very close genetics, but there's some feature about them that's different. That's what polymorphism is. And that's what makes tree bark as unique as like a fingerprint to humans. All right, other things that will influence which lichen grow in trees, and that is the overall shape or the architecture of the tree. So a decurrent tree over here on the left, it's a a white oak. And this time you have that nice rounded full crown, so there's more opportunities for the lichen to grow on the inside. But if it's a cone shape, like an X-current tree on the right, it's a little tougher for lichen to get established in there, especially the older type of lichen, is because there's more exposure to wind and more exposure to light. Also, the branch orientation has something to do with the lichen and how it's gonna be distributed on the trunk. The pitch pine on the left, when it rains, when there's a rain event, and I have no life, so I just go out during rain events and watch different types of trees and watch what happens to the rain. There's rain that falls out it's okay to laugh. There's rain that falls outside of the trees. And then when the rain hits the trees, two things can happen. You can have through fall, where it bounces off a needle, it bounces off the bark, and it goes down to the ground. It does pick up some nutrients that can be leached out or that the leaf or the surface of the bark has picked up from the air. And that goes down to the ground. And then there's stem flow. And that's where the water is gonna go down the needle or go down the leaf go down the branch, and then go down the trunk to the base of the tree. And on the way down, there's more opportunity for picking up leech nutrients, especially the ones that are given off by um, the, um, the lichen. Unless you have an orientation like this, the Norway spruce have that type of branches that go out, here the rainfall is going to come down and then it's just going to go and you'll have throughfall at that point. So the, the lichen distribution on this branch is going to be different than the lichen, lichen distribution on that plant. And it doesn't have to do with exposure to light, it's exposure to the rain and uh, the stem flow. So there it is up close on the pitch pine on the left. And this is what the, the best I could do with my camera, trying to picture, uh, take a picture of water coming down during a rain event down the trunk of the tree. Researchers that are looking at this, they, it has caught the attention of a lot of forest ecologists because there's a significant amount of nitrate, that's a usable form of nitrogen for the tree, and potassium, and then there was at least eight other different nutrients too, but the potassium and the nitrate was quite high that they found in that. And I looked at their pictures where they're setting up their collection tubes for the stem flow, and I've seen little bits and pieces of uh, lichen. I go back through to their article and no mention of the lichen at all. And I know that plays a role in it, uh, because like the cyanobacteria, that lichen is gonna be taking the nitrogen inside of it, and it's gonna be using it up. There's gonna be nitrate that can leach out, and that might be a, a contributor to it. More if you have lichen on the tree, less if you don't have as much. And here is the water going on down to the base of the tree. And uh, as the water reaches the base of the tree, it will go over the buttress roots and underneath them. And what they found is that underneath the buttress roots of these trees, the soil is compacted and the exudates that are released from the roots have sort of made a channel. So there's this double funneling that's going on. You have the branches bringing the water down to the trunk the water comes down the trunk, it hits the buttress roots, and it goes underneath the buttress roots, and it's going right to the rhizosphere. It's taking care of all that soil right up against the root. It doesn't go out into the bulk soil. And there's a lot of nutrients that are in that stem flow too. All right, some of the big picture you know, reasons why you know, lichen's our friend not to destroy it. The earth is 71% water and uh, 29% land. Um, of the land surface. of that is covered by lichen today. And I think 33% is desert, 30% is forest, and the rest is (laughs) Walmarts. Over over on the right, uh, this this was the first, nature's pioneer is lichen. You had fungus in the water, you had bacteria in the water, and it wasn't until they made that Reese's Cup that those guys came to land, and there was a time on this planet where it was just covered with lichen. And there was a cost to that. When the lichen, about 750 million years ago, when it was just none but lichen on the land surface, they did photosynthesis like a banshee. Uh, They did photosynthesis so well that they actually caused a, a number of ice ages from 750 million years ago to about 580 million years ago. When it was all done, uh, there was a lot of oxygen in the atmosphere. So now that allowed the Cambrian explosion, and then you could have lots of different animals come up and start to explore this new atmosphere we had. Lichen can also play a significant role with respect to nitrogen fixation. And again, I'm going back to this book. Uh, One of the individuals that they talk about in the wild trees here uh, has proposed that up to 50% of the nitrogen that's in, uh, old-growth conifer trees in the Pacific Northwest is from carbon, the nitrogen fixation of the lichen in the trees. They had this bit of a quandary where they were looking out in the soil for the nitrogen that could account for such a massive tree and they weren't finding it. And then when they found the significant amount of lichen in those trees, they just followed the stem flow down and they go, there was that missing nitrogen. That's where it came from. I've seen other reports where they talk about it can provide up to 30% of the nitrogen needs of the tree, the existing lichen that's inside of it. It breaks down rocks significantly faster than normal weathering processes. Maybe if I can run it all the way to the end, skip the question. This is a soil crust lichen, lichen that's growing on bare ground. We have a lot of that in you know, urban areas. The benefit of having that lichen on the surface is that it helps to shade the soil and moderate the temperature. It helps to hold moisture in there because the lichen is so good at pulling water out of the air right across its, you know, into its thallus. It can add moisture to the soil, it can add nitrogen and organic matter to the soil too. It's very important in food webs. Uh, 90% of the caribou and the reindeer are dependent upon, uh, it's 90% of their diet, the caribou and the reindeer in the winter. Is going to be that. This is also true for a lot of deer and a lot of moose at certain times of the year. For the flying squirrels in the Pacific Northwest and also in West Virginia, between 80 and 90 percent in the winter and spring, they're dependent upon lichen for that. So they find, for example, in Scandinavia and in New England that the songbird population was going down. They started to untangle that web of dependence and they found out that the invertebrates that those birds depended upon weren't there. And they weren't there because the lichen wasn't there. It was because of forest management strategies. The way they were managing the forest, the lichen couldn't get a toehold and establish themselves. Places where owl populations have gone down, they found out that it's the flying squirrels and the black voles. Their population's gone down because they're dependent upon lichen. Oh, it's lichen's used for bird's nests. It's used for camouflage. Uh, There was a wonderful study done in England a long time about these peppered moths that are on the trunks of trees and they mimic the color of lichen and they did just fine until pollution came and then it killed those lichen and then the moths were exposed and they had to undergo adaptation to change their appearance again. Because the lichen doesn't have that cuticle, they take everything in. They're bioaccumulators. Minerals are their friends. They want minerals. They're just, they didn't get the memo that some of these minerals are really toxic and bad for them. So they bring it all in and they accumulate it and that's what will end up killing them. So there are our canary in the coal mine. They let us know about the air quality in an environment. You can even look at uh, (laughs) lichen and you can take them into the lab and then you can analyze it to find out how much is in there and you can make a map to find out where is that point source for pollution and you can trace it back to that. And it's a wonderful way too when you see certain species of lichen coming back uh, to let you know the air quality is improving. So if you had fruticose lichen on a tree, and it's good, we got good air quality, but if there's air pollution, then you're going back down to crustose. You can build your way back up to fruticoscan and that means that the air quality is improving. It can also be used for prospecting. They can analyze the lichen because they can find out, for example, if there's gold, if there's copper. They even use this to find out uh, when satellites have crashed and if there's any nuclear you know, uh, radiation that's released because lichen will pick that up too. Um, so if you have lichen that's dying, for example, this one right here, this is, there was a car that was parked here, and exhaust is coming out, and uh, this one died. So but it is really, a, that's one way that lichen's use, and I think that's something arborists can do is to help out is to actually climb the trees, learn a little bit about lichen, and we can participate in all kinds of studies that are only being conducted at this height right now, and they really need to be done at other heights as well. There are certain species of lichen that are indicators of old-growth forest. Um, When you have many different lichens together, for example, in uh, Scotland, in the west, they find up to 400 species in the forest there. You can find 30 to 20 different species on a single tree. When you have that much diversity right there, it's really hard for pathogens to get a toehold in and attack Oh thanks. Well, let me, I'm just gonna skip over to now what an arborist can do. when, one thing this arborist is going to do is try to get the bloody word lichen into our ISA dictionary. That's my goal this year, is to do that. But when we look at our services that we offer, there's some that aren't relevant at all to, with respect to lichen, but some are. If you're doing excessive crown raising, that's going to be a blow to the lichen that's in the tree. Also, if you do excessive crown thinning, there's going to be a price to pay for that. That additional exposure is going to drive away a lot of the beneficial lichen. Other ones are going to show up, but they're not the ones that provide the best benefits. The fertilization, they found that around cement factories when you have the dust that comes off, that will influence the makeup of lichen all around that area. Same thing with agricultural fields. The nitrogen that volatilizes is changing the density and diversity of lichen around those fields. And I'm thinking of probably the same is happening in urban landscapes too. Double-edged sword with the water, it's great for lichen, but it can also uh, cause problems in that it brings in the, different, the wrong kind of lichen, that, you know, ones that don't provide the same benefits. The trees that we select, you know, if we select long living trees, trees that are native for that area, that's going to be better for the lichen. Mulch is always good for the tree. If it's in the best interest of the tree, it's going to be in the best interest of the lichen, too. The, I know it's really small, but in lightning protection, you know, copper and fungus sometimes does not play well together. Um, and then uh, when using pest management strategies, if fungicide's part of that, this is an example of where a tree was sprayed with a fungicide and it, it killed that lichen there. Invasive species, that's not a platform for lichen to thrive in. And in tree risk assessment, one thing we teach people, I am a track instructor, one one thing we teach people is that look for response growth in the tree. And uh, you want to look at secondary growth of the tree and also around the defect as well. And if you're familiar with the lichen, it can be an indication of how well that tree is growing. Lichen transplants, and I swear I'm just about done, uh, it doesn't work. I've tried it, others have tried it, and it's not successful. You can transplant it over to a tree, but after the first rain event, you tend to lose that tree. So when it comes to wild things, I would argue that it's not the lions, tigers, and bears that are the wild things. Because they're trained, they're in zoos, they're performing in Vegas. The ultimate wild thing is lichen. They cannot be tamed. Thanks for having me.
1: This concludes Joe Murray's presentation on the life cycle and benefits of lichens in today's forest. If you would like to receive CEUs for listening to this lecture, visit the ISA online store and select online CEU quizzes. Thank you for listening to this episode brought to you by Bartlett Tree Experts, caring for America's trees since 1907. Remember to subscribe to this podcast series, and join us next time for another episode of Science of Arboriculture.
0: Dreams in every country. Dreams you know we can. Work together and learn what we need. To meet the challenge. Traditional skills and modern techniques. Whatever language you speak, you have a world to offer every day. Climb with the ISA.